under the cortex enters its second year, there's quite a bit of exciting content to look back on. For this special episode, we decided to comb through the archive and revisit three exciting stories from our early days that our new listeners may not have heard. I'm Charles Blue, and with the help of our audio engineer, Mary Garner-McGee, I would like to bring you three of my favorite podcasts from the early days of Under the Cortex, the podcast of the Association for Psychological Science, which is supported by Macmillan Learning Psychology. Our first story explores why groups can look on the good old days as a guide for curing the woes of today. Um, hi, I'm uh, Michael Wall. I'm a professor of psychology and uh, the chair of the uh, graduate program in psychology at Carleton University, which is in Ottawa, um, Ontario, Canada. I've been researching group-based emotions. So those are the emotions that you that you experience by virtue of group membership, right? So part of our sense of self is derived by our membership in groups and there are some groups that you identify with more so than others. So for example, I'm a, what's called a highly identified Canadian, right? I, part of my <laughs> sense of self is, is, is derived by the fact that I'm Canadian. And that ends up influencing how I think and how I feel. What my colleagues and I did in this current paper is that we summarized recent research on collective banks that we've conducted and other people have conducted and collective nostalgia, which is that sentimental longing for your group's past. And we wanted to emphasize that those two emotions are interconnected. And what we argued is these emotions can influence each other, which then has downstream consequences for people's attitudes and behaviors. So we put forth the supposition that the source of collective angst, that concern for the group's future vitality, the source of the collective angst that group members can feel can influence the content of the nostalgia that they experience. So what group members are longing for, which has consequences for the attitudes and actions that group members will support to protect their group's future vitality. Further, we argued that political rhetoric tends to capitalize on the relation between these two emotions to make specific existential threats salient, to elicit specific nostalgizing about the group's past, followed by promises to bring back the old days. Where else can we see this as having influenced the political process? You know, if you take a look at political rhetoric, yes, I think the Make America Great Again, I mean, again, (laughs) it's trying to elicit nostalgia in that phrase. But politicians use nostalgia all the time. Um, But it's not necessarily just for bad, so to speak. It can be used for good. So, for example, if we look back at some of uh, former President Obama's rhetoric, he used nostalgia as well as a means to to say that, uh, for example, under the Bush administration, America had lost its way, had lost its ties to American values and, and traditions, and that Part of the hope slogan is hope of return to a time when, when America's values and traditions of, of taking in people from around the world, regardless of creed and color, and where everyone could, could live as one harmonious group, right? So 
we see nostalgia being used as a tool frequently around the world and that it can sow the seeds of discord, but also to bring people together. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that nostalgia for the past is very group specific. So it might have been fantastic for one third of the population, but absolutely horrendous for two thirds. So this is actually really a very group specific dynamic you're talking about. Right. So, for example, um, you know, nostalgizing about a more homogeneous society, right, when everybody was perhaps white and Christian, which, of course, was never the case in America. Or you could be nostalgizing about a past when America opened up its doors to immigrants from around the world and took them in and it was supposed to be a melting pot, right? But was that ever true? <laughs> Let's take a step back and think about the nature of memory. Our memory is not a snapshot of necessarily what was. Depending on a person or a group's psychological needs and goals, different aspects of the past may be selectively brought to light or forgotten in a process called um, reconsolidation. Nuances of past events can be lost and misinformation added, and thus group members and leaders in particular may consciously or not distort their memory, memories in order to achieve specific goals. So um, this could be one of the processes that underlies uh, polarization. That's very insightful and not something that I think is intuitive to many people. We've been speaking with Michael Wohl, who has been researching this collective angst and how it plays into nostalgia. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Next. We'll discuss why we're drawn to villains, monstrous characters from fiction, especially if they remind us of ourselves in some way. My name's Rebecca Krauss, and I am a, a PhD candidate at Northwestern University. So your research reveals that people can find fictional villains strangely likable. Why is that? We find in our research that people like fictional villains who are similar to themselves. This is really interesting, or at least it was to us when we found it, because we know from a lot of prior research that generally when someone seems bad or has undesirable kinds of qualities, we really avoid them. And particularly we avoid them if they seem similar to ourselves. And so we were really interested that when it comes to fictional characters, this is kind of the opposite of what happens. People are really excited and, and drawn to villains that are similar to them. If I come across someone in the newspaper who's done something terrible, but I start reading we had similar experiences in our background, I would find that person particularly distasteful because of those similarities? That's exactly right. People have a really strong desire to feel like they're good. It's very important to people to think, you know, I'm a good person. Once you encounter someone who is a bad person and seems like you, it, it's really uncomfortable because people have to contend with this idea that someone who's like me has the capability of doing terrible things. So we'd rather just avoid them generally outside the context of fiction is what is found before. And your research just totally flips that around when we're talking about people in fictional settings. We originally going in wondered if that would still be the case in fiction. That is that even in fiction, people would be uncomfortable with villains being similar to them. They would only want the good guy to be similar to them. What we actually find is that because they're in fiction, people feel like it's okay to have these similarities that would otherwise be uncomfortable. And it's because people understand that fiction is its own kind of world. 
so they feel licensed or it feels okay to just say maybe this would be uncomfortable in real life but given that it's a fictional character I don't have to engage with the idea that, you know, this might mean something about me. I can just accept that it's kind of cool that they're similar to me and it doesn't actually say anything about me in real life that I'm similar to, you know, this evil person in a fictional context. But does your research say anything about the actual behaviors that uh, are attributed to these evil archetypes? Or is it not really dependent on what they're doing? It's just that they have likable characteristics beyond it. What we find is that people are drawn to villains that are similar to them, regardless of the trait that is similar. And we find this both in company data from a company called Caricature that we partnered with and in our own experiments. So what I mean is we find that people who share positive things with a villain find themselves drawn to them, but they also are more drawn to villains where they when they share negative traits with them. So for example, in the company day that we have, we find that fans of villains tend to have more what you would think of as villainous traits. So they're more likely to report themselves as selfish or manipulative or those kinds of things. Is there a difference in the characteristics of the villain? So we have some who have these nice story arcs where we sympathize at the beginning and maybe there's redemption at the end, such as Vader. Or then you look at, in the Harry Potter universe, Voldemort really has few, if any, redeeming qualities the characteristics of the villain don't really matter in this case. That's a really interesting question of whether the specific characteristics of the villain matter for whether people are comfortable feeling associated with them. We can't really answer that just based on the study that we have published now because we don't describe that many different kinds of villains. However, I think that would be a really interesting future question to ask. And I think that it would absolutely matter for whether you like the character in general. So maybe people like someone who's more kind of well-developed and more uh, interesting and that they have a more interesting backstory and that kind of thing. They might like them more, but our research would just say that being similar to any of those characters is more interesting and more attractive than than not being similar to those characters. I will just say, uh, you know, I sincerely doubt anyone has ever been attracted to the character of Umbridge. So there's-, there's Oh a- no, that is a really good point actually, because I've actually thought of that particular character and I think nobody ever would want to be Umbridge. And I actually kind of, it's so funny today because I have actually thought about future research on this topic. Like what is this character that is like, absolutely not, I hate it. I will never read that book if you tell me I'm similar to her. If you have any thoughts, I'm very interested because I'm trying to figure out what this is. I I think she's, one of my thoughts is maybe she's too real. What did we learn from your research that we didn't know before? I think what readers would learn from our research that they didn't know before is that people are really drawn to villains that they can feel similar to. I think this is different from what we've known before in that tons of previous research has said people just really don't like feeling similar to people they see as bad. And I also think it's interesting from the perspective of companies like the company we've partnered with or even just just people, uh, just consumers, people who want to watch or read or, or that kind of thing, and they're thinking about what stories they might be interested in, this suggests that it may be more interesting to engage with a story where you find the villain uh, who's similar to you. And finally on this look back, we'll resurrect our creepy look at haunted houses and why they're so fun. Few things are as frightful as the sight of a chainsaw-wielding maniac or a mob of brain-munching zombies. 
These monstrous characters are common tropes in horror films and haunted houses, which in normal years are popular Halloween season destinations. But what makes such fearsome experiences so compelling? Why do we actively seek them out in frightful recreational settings? New research in the journal Psychological Science reveals that horror entertains us most effectively when it triggers a distinct physical response, but it's not so scary that we become overwhelmed. I'm Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science, and you're listening to Under the Cortex. To help us sink our teeth into why humans seek out horror and fear, I have with me Mark Malmdorf Anderson and Matthias Clausen, both with Aarhus University in Denmark and authors on the upcoming paper, Playing with Fear. Yeah, hi Charles, uh, I'm, um, I'm Mark, and um, yeah, so we've been uh, looking at this, uh, this very interesting and, and somewhat paradoxical relationship between fear and enjoyment in our recent studies, and our most recent article that's coming out here in Psychological Science is about this precise relationship between fear and enjoyment uh, and arousal in, in what we call recreational fear. Recreational fear. Again, that's something where it seems paradoxical, as you mentioned. Why should I be in the least bit interested in being frightened? What's, what's the attraction? Yeah, well, good question. So horror researchers and uh, psychologists have been asking this question for a long time. It does seem quite paradoxical. I mean, if you, if you look at uh, most handbooks on psychology, they will all tell you that fear is an emotion we have developed to keep us away from things that might harm us in, in different ways. But still, people seem to really enjoy being scared. I mean, if we look at the horror industry, it's booming, right? Uh, and right now we're in the Halloween season. People seem to get kicks out of fear. And, uh, and so our most uh, recent research tries to investigate uh, or how is it that we can extract enjoyment out of this fundamentally unpleasant emotion. Why do we find this in the least bit attractive. Matthias, could you enlighten us a little bit on that? So I'm Mark's colleague. I'm Matthias Claesen, also of Aarhus University in Denmark. And um, I've been, I think the, the end goal is to, to answer that big why question. And um, one of the things that we think is that uh, horror allows people to play with fear. And this is something Mark can tell you more about because he's a play researcher. So in, in play research, there seems to be some kind of experiential attractiveness to moderate amounts of new information. So we know, for instance, that uh, the children and adults tend to be more curious if something surprises them a little bit, uh, more so than if something surprises them a lot. We also see it when children, for instance, engage in risky play if they run really fast down a hill or climb high up a tree. What seems to go on there is that children are challenging themselves, pushing their own boundaries, but only to an extent we can see that they, they seek arousal when they engage in risky play. But if they get too much of an arousal, then they withdraw from play. We know that humans like novelty. Uh, and it seems that humans uh, are very attracted to moderate amounts of novelty. So, so Matthias came to us and, and said that he had this interesting <laughs> phenomena at a haunted house where, you know, people pay money to, uh, to, to, to get scared. And so this model uh, of play just seemed very compatible, you could say, uh, on the outset already, that maybe this is a form uh, of adults playing with, uh, you could say, uh, bodily arousal in a way, playing with, with fear, much like children that engage in risky play. 
So this is almost like the Goldilocks zone of horror and fear that people are looking for. They want to get scared enough that they have this sort of visceral reaction, the, the blood pressure spikes, the pulse increases, all the things that would happen if there were like a, a tiger off in the bushes, but they know there's no real tiger there, but we simulate it enough to really spike whatever's happening within the body. Have I kind of nailed that? Yeah, you uh, you kind of have developmental psychology. We do, we do talk about the, the Goldilocks principle, which is this idea that children seem attracted to, to just right amount of, of surprise. And, and, and this is essentially also what we find in this new study, that people enjoy themselves the most if they are moderately scared but if they are too scared they, their enjoyment starts to to plummet and similarly if they are not scared enough then they they thought it was boring to be to be in the haunted attraction so there seems to be this just right element when we ask our participants uh, but what's really interesting i think in our results is that we can see this in the the heart rate signature of the participants as well so, we so you actually had, had real data as they're experiencing it. So real-time feedback of what's happening. Yes. So we equipped all of our participants with heart rate monitors before we sent them into the, the haunted attraction. And what we found was that, so when your heart races up and down, when your pulse increases and decreases a lot, that is what is related to participants saying that it was really scary inside the haunt. And that makes intuitive sense for most of us, right? We know that our pulse typically go up when we, when we, get, when we get scared. But, but another way of phrasing it would be to say, when the organism is very far from its expected state, you know, we all have an expected state. You and I have an expected state. It's probably in front of the computer with, you know, 70 beats per minute or something like that. That is how, where our bodies expect to be. When we stray very far from that, condition, then it feels very unpleasant. And that's what we experience as fear. But what we then also see is that if we, if our BPM, uh, heartbeat per minute, just varies a little bit, goes a little bit up and down in a 10 second jump scare at the haunted attraction, that is precisely what seems to be closely correlated with the enjoyment that the participants report. So there is this deviation from the norm when we're scared and that's where we can get some, some play enjoyment out of it. But is it because we recover quickly and can look back on it that we enjoy it more? Or if we hit that peak scare level that we want to hit, but it doesn't go down, what if those fears continue and keep it at that elevated point for a good period of time? Would that then become unpleasant? What we find is that the pulse needs to go up and down in a moderate way. So imagine that you, your beats per minute go up to 120 and stay there. That is not uh, what we find that, that relates to, to enjoyment in this study. What we find is that if your physiology changes a little bit all the time, that is what we find enjoyable in the haunted attraction. So if um, a person were to jump out with a chainsaw and scare you, and then you got away, that would be great. But if a person jumped out with a chainsaw and chased you for the next 10 minutes, that would absolutely be what you don't want to experience. Yes, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. If you had to bring three things into a haunted house to make it a success, something that people would absolutely enjoy at the right level, what are three magic ingredients? Three things to make a haunt successful. I would most certainly try to amp the expectations of my participants. Second thing is definitely a chainsaw. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the most famous character in the haunted attraction that we have uh, conducted our studies in is this very large man with a bloody 
butcher's apron uh, that wields a uh, a chainsaw. He is responsible for a lot of participants quitting midway in the haunted attraction. So I think chainsaw is definitely on point as well. Then I think uh, variance really is what you need. You need to vary your the ways in which you attempt attempt to scare uh, your participants. Transgressive behavior is one thing, but you can do a lot with mood as well. You can do a lot with narrative. You can do a lot with jump scare. You can do a lot with, and that's what we see in uh, at least in the haunted attraction that we know very well by now. <laughs> okay, that's that's a good list. Matthias, do you have any additions or would you make it a substitution there for anything? Uh, no, I would, I would agree. Uh, we have talked about studying those roughly 5 to 10% of, of guests who drop out to get a better grip on what is happening in their minds and in their bodies when they become overwhelmed, when they uh, tumble down the slope of that uh, sweet spot and end up in, a, in an abyss of I don't know, despair and, and real pain. I love the idea of the chainsaw-wielding maniac. It gives you both something visual, something surprise, and then there's this, this roaring sound of the chainsaw. So you really are kind of assaulted among, on multiple levels with that. Yeah, um, um, Mark and I and our third colleague, uh, Colton Scribner, who, who also participated in the study, uh, we, we took a tour of the haunted house just to get a better sense of, of how it all works. And I had seen it before, uh, both with the actors and with the effects and without and I knew that at a particular point, the guy with the chainsaw would, would, would come running at me. And he did. And I still felt that uh, clenching fist of panic in my, in my stomach. Um, there is something about that roaring sound of that uh, chainsaw in the darkness that just bypasses all, all reason, all rationality, and just hits you right in the gut. So a chainsaw definitely has to be part of it. Mark, if somebody were to listen to this or read a paper about it, what's one thing you really want them to walk away with? That we show this uh, what this inverted U-shaped relationship between fear and enjoyment essentially that there is this there seem to be this sweet spot for fear where enjoyment is maximized. I think in in sort of the history of, of horror entertainment, at some point, uh, you know, creators of horror have believed that the more horror, the better, and that is probably not the case. There's an an, an experiential attractiveness to these moderate amounts of all kinds of stuff, including fear. And I think that is what I would want the, uh, the list to take away now that they are venturing into uh, the, the dark streets of, uh, of Halloween. Matthias, do you have any parting thoughts on what really makes horror something worth enjoying? Exactly what you just said. It's not uh, weird to find uh, horror entertainment enjoyable. And most people seem to find some pleasure in, in recreational fear activities, whether it's going on a roller coaster or watching The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix with their families or indeed visiting a haunted house. And uh, we've only kind of scratched the surface of the constructive uses to which scary entertainment can, can be put. Thank you very much for your time. I've been speaking with Mark Malmdorf Anderson and Matthias Klassen. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having us, Charles. Thanks for the invitation. Under the Cortex is supported by Macmillan Learning Psychology. In the classroom, whether in person or on screen, content matters. But not if students are disinterested or disengaged. At Macmillan Learning Psychology, our authors are committed educators who know firsthand what teachers are facing today. That experience guides not only the books they write, but the interactive learning and assessment tools they help create. No matter how you teach, we can help you captivate your students. Macmillan Learning Psychology, engaging every student, supporting every instructor, 
setting the new standard for teaching and learning.